0: Welcome to the latest installment of The Curious Capitalist. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also local business owners, startups and entrepreneurs from across the state of Connecticut. Welcome to episode 21 of The Curious Capitalist. On this edition, we have the privilege of speaking with Michael O'Leary and Warren Voldmanis. Michael O'Leary was on the founding team of Bain Capital Social Impact Fund. He served as economic policy advisor to the US Senate and on two presidential campaigns. He is a Harvard graduate and earned his MBA from Stanford. Warren is partner with Two Sigma Impact, a private equity fund, and was previously a managing director with Bain Capital Social Impact Fund. Warren is a Dartmouth graduate and earned his MBA from Harvard Business School. Michael and Warren are also co-authors of a brand new book, Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism. Gentlemen, welcome to The Curious Capitalist. Thank you, Claire. So gentlemen, your book was released just last month. How did this collaboration first come about?
1: Michael and I first met each other when we were working together uh, as investors for Bain Capital out in Asia. When we came back from that posting, uh, both of us went uh, to work with Governor Deval Patrick at Bain Capital's fledgling social impact fund. And when we did that, uh, I set out to go read everything there was to know about social impact and what it meant and how it could change the world. And I couldn't find any great books on the topic, at least from the perspective of how do you make corporations better, which, by the way, we think is the most important social institution today uh, and one that is in most uh, need of change. And because we couldn't find the book, we started writing. And together, uh, as we began writing on this topic, uh, we realized that uh, a book was needed. And so decided to collaborate uh, to write, uh, ultimately became accountable.
0: Brilliant. And how was the experience? I mean, how long did it take you guys to write? Did you write independently or together?
1: Well, Michael taught me how to use Google Docs, which was really helpful. Uh, Michael <laughs> and I are from, from, uh, from different generations. Uh, Michael likes to joke that, it was my generation that screwed everything up and his that has to, to fix it. Fair point, um,
0: fair point there, yep.
2: <laughs> I don't think we recognized going into it, I don't think we realized how important actually that generational difference was. As we got into the topic, we just started to realize that a lot of these views on capitalism at large, You know, do you support capitalism? There's a huge difference whether you're looking at baby boomers or Gen X or millennials or Gen Z. And, and that sort of difference is, you can see it through employee activism and consumer boycotts. You can see it through views on ESG, environmental, social issues, and investing. Warren is a, a little bit more on the right side of political aisle. I'm a little bit more on the left side. We come from slightly different generations. I'm, I'm kind of the median of the millennial generation. Warren is Gen X. That helped us to parse through a, a movement, this movement to reform capitalism. I think as you dig into it, you realize it has a lot of different arms, many of which don't speak to each other. You know, and, and the way divestment relates to impact investing, relates to corporate social responsibility, relates to government reform. But a lot of these things are independent movements. And what we try to
1: do in Accountable is figure out how do they all tie together. And Michael, thank you for calling me Gen X. That's a lot more polite than what he normally calls me, which is old and yeah. reactionary.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, how long did it take you guys to write the book from start to finish? And did you write together or independently and throw it together? I don't think I
2: realized how long the publishing process takes. And so we started working on this when we were at Bain Capital Double Impact at the social impact arm there. And, and then it was probably a, a year or so of working on it until we ended up getting a book deal and, and digging in and then another year of writing. And so I think start to finish, it's probably been maybe two, two and a half years, Warren, I think, where we've been working yeah, nearly, on this. And, and it's dangerous, I will say, it is dangerous to write about a field that is changing so rapidly. When you're dealing with these long lead times that like you have in a book, where you know we just found, I'll take the divestment movement as an example. We started writing about the Harvard divestment movement, and then as we we're in revisions, as the book is going to press, all these new things are coming out. You know, the field is changing so much, and and you were so eager to try and keep everything in the book because everything's evolving so quickly. And I think where we landed was to try and create something that you know is, is enough in the principles and background that it still stand it will hopefully stand the test of time as a good explainer introduction to this space but it's amazing to see how the issues we write about things like impact invo- investing you know continue I, was, I think probably the field has doubled in the time that we've started writing about
0: it that's quite incredible so it's almost like some of the the industry is moving so quickly that by the time it hits the shelves so to speak there's already revisions in your mind's eye that you're going to need to do is there a second book on the horizon <laughs> oh,
2: uh, there is a second book that needs to be written, but not quite yet. you know I think, I think the big thing that changed for us was, uh, and every author who has a book coming out this spring, summer, fall, winter, is the pandemic. and And you know we knew the election was coming. we knew capitalism would be on the ballot. and there'd be a lot of energy and interest in trying to figure out in what role should government be playing and making capitalism more responsible more ethical but the pandemic I think it took a lot of these issues that we were writing about and threw them into very sharp relief you know what role should corporations be playing in society what responsibilities or obligations do they have to their employees in times of crisis and I think it has been fascinating for us to watch as a lot of the things we were writing about suddenly became the most important issue to corporations you know how yeah, much and I just process- say Claire,
1: Yeah, and I just say Claire, that the Um, You know, I I think there is uh, definitely a second and maybe third and fourth book uh, embedded in Accountable. We deliberately tried to make the book broad sweeping, sort of like a Hariri for capitalists. And with the idea that we were trying to stimulate discussion around a whole host of issues. So impact investing is one of them. But there's also the question of what role does philanthropy play in society? What role should divestment, government, you know, a whole bunch of these other areas. And I imagine you could write a very interesting book on any one of those uh, things. We deliberately made it broad sweeping uh, so that we could cover a lot of ground, but I think that there's some areas where we'd love to go into further depth.
0: Well, it sounds like there's definitely gonna be a bit of a series on the horizon. What was the most difficult part of the writing process for you guys as authors?
1: I think it was actually, at least for me, editing down. I thought you were
0: going to say Google Docs then. I thought you were going to say Google <laughs> well, Docs. <laughs>
1: that was probably more difficult for Michael than me because I kept sending him uh, Word documents and he kept uh, having to upload them and teach me how these the things work. Version worked.
2: control and, is always difficult,
1: always difficult, <laughs> but
2: especially here.
1: But the, but the editing process is especially interesting um, because you know, we really started by getting all of our ideas down on paper without actually writing it narrative style, which is where we ended up. And just that alone would have been much longer than the book that we ended up publishing. And so there were a lot of ideas that we were trying to you know reduce into bite sized chunks. And I, I guess I never understood more that that joke. I would have, you know, written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. You know, the editing process can be quite brutal. And I think there's a bunch of stuff that we end up having to cut that I think would be the basis of maybe a future book and and certainly the basis of a lot of the discussions that we have around the book. One thing we really wanted to do with this book is we sort of had two
2: audiences in mind that in some ways are very different. And we wanted to we wanted to write the book for both audiences. And so on the one hand, we had our old colleagues at places like Bain Capital, you know, people who are deep, deep experts in finance, in investing, and who would be asking us very challenging questions on things like uh, you know, I've spent my entire career trying to maximize financial return. You're now saying you're going to add all these other goals around social and environmental impact. You're putting all these other constraints around sectors you would never invest in. You know, how is it you're not giving up some amount of financial return in order to do so? And so we wanted to write a book that would like meet those critiques at the highest level of rigor. But we also did not want to write a book that you know was relevant to all of 12 people in the world. And so we wanted to write something that was you know, accessible to a general audience that anyone who has kind of thought to themselves, you know, what role do I play in in reforming capitalism, you know, even just as a consumer in the grocery store or as an employee or as a voter, you know, through my own 401k account, my, you know, whatever little investing I do in my retirement accounts. And so I think something really that we struggled with, but ultimately, I think we came out at a good place, trying to figure out how do you write something that meets both audiences, that's both generally accessible but also meets that high level of rigor that, that for folks who have spent a lot of time thinking about, say, whether or not university divestment of oil and gas stocks, whether that is an effective way to fight climate change. There's some pretty technical arguments that people will bring up on something like that. And we wanted to make sure that we addressed them. You know, and we, gave them we gave them kind of fair airing.
0: Mm, no, absolutely. So thinking about your careers to date, prior to becoming authors, of course, gentlemen. Uh, tell me a little bit about your career and your journey to get to this point. I'll tell you, Claire, I was a, an
1: economics major in college. I've always believed uh, that capitalism could be an enormous force for good. And in fact, I think capitalism's report card reads you know, pretty well. If you look back at you know, history and you look at the first three millennia up to 1750, GDP per capita grew at exactly 0%. So no change, really, in, the, uh, in, in living standards. And, and since then, globally, it has gone up by a factor of 37 times. So when you think of the prosperity and the longevity and all the different things that we have today, those things didn't happen by ap- accident, they happened by capitalism. But if you think about capitalism today, as it's been pr- practiced, frankly, for the past sort of 40 or 50 years in America, it creates all kinds of distorted results. One, I think the most shocking statistics along these lines, the, the town where our, our firm was headquartered, where we launched the Bain Capital Impact business, there are two adjacent neighborhoods in that town where the life expectancy gap is 33 years. Wow. Now, um, unbelievably long. Uh, and by the way, there, there are now more recent reports coming out about other, other cities where the same thing or similar thing is true. And so capitalism needs reforming. The invisible hand uh, can only take you so far. That's not something that I realized when I graduated from college and, and started out life as a consultant, uh, but it's something that I've come to realize over the past, I'd say, you know, maybe, maybe decade or so. And I think it's really, really important that we capitalists commit to making the changes necessary to make capitalism more inclusive, or frankly, other folks are gonna change capitalism for us, probably to, to all of our detriment.
2: And there's this very traditional view in the finance world, in the corporate world more broadly, it's a very traditional view that you should make your money during the week and then give it away on the weekends. That you know we should bifurcate our lives into one part economic, another part moral, where you try and maximize profits for your company or for your investing portfolio, uh, in your job, in your career, and that you trust the invisible hand to make sure that, that leads to the most productive and efficient economy. And then with the winnings, you go and you donate them or, or you go and you vote and you spend time doing philanthropic work. And this is sort of the Warren Buffett, Bill Gates giving pledge methodology where you know Warren Buffett is radically skeptical of everything that smells of corporate social responsibility or corporate do-goodery, but he's also pledged to donate 99% of his wealth to charity. So it's not that he's a cold, heartless capitalist. He just believes in this very traditional bifurcation of your life into one part moral and another part economic. And it was so fascinating, both Warren and I, I think, came into the business world with that same sort of ideology, and the impact fund for both of us, and I attribute a lot of this to Governor Patrick, who, you know, he came in with with the mantra of rejecting false choices, this idea that you have to choose between doing good and doing well is a false choice that, that we need not make. I think for both Warren and I coming into the world of impact investing, that was one of the core realizations was this idea that you can do much more good if instead of bifurcating your life, if you reintegrate your more and economic lives so that the core of what you do in your job every day, where the core of what you achieve through your investing portfolio, or the way you vote or what you buy, is in line with your values. And I think mean, that's a really powerful thing. I mean, we, we look at giving in America, Warren, you might remember the numbers, but we give something like 2% of GDP to philanthropy every year as Americans, which is actually higher than, than most other countries. The problem is if the other 98% of GDP is working against the sorts of things that we care about in philanthropy, then the philanthropy is rendered impotent. And so that's, I think, a big part of what is lying behind accountable, what's lying behind this movement for conscious capitalism, reformed capitalism, this idea that we need to get all 100% of GDP pushing in the direction of what we care about, pushing in in line with our values on issues like climate change or inequality or whatever it might be.
0: Thinking about your career paths, what do you wish you'd known before you set out on your, your journey through Bain Capital and now obviously to the book? What do you wish you'd known when you started out? It's going to be different for both of you, isn't it, I suppose?
1: I probably didn't realize how important purpose is to all, all things. I think in your life, but I think with corporations. And you know, I've now been on the board of you know, a dozen or so corporations. And I always started with strategy. strategy was the place you start when you're trying to figure out how a corporation can evolve for the better and what I've realized over the past few years is that actually the the true capstone for any corporation frankly for any endeavor worth doing is actually purpose and strategy comes second and after that comes tactics and I think too often uh, in companies uh, and and in other things uh, people start in the wrong place many people start with tactics corporate strategists or management consultants have realized that strategy is really important, but uh, I think we're still coming gradually to the view that uh, purpose should be the guiding light. And if it's the guiding light of corporations, a lot of good things happen. A lot of strange things get uh, chiropracted out when you're able to go back and say, why does my company exist in the first place? And how do I faithfully serve that mission? And one of the things we talk about in Accountable is, how you can discover your, you know, the purpose of your corporation and actually ingrain it into your corporate charter. One little understood issue in, in capitalism is that when the corporate form first was introduced, every corporation to get approved by the, the crown or Congress had to describe its corporate purpose in its foundational documents. And today, most companies just write to do whatever is lawful in the state of Delaware, which isn't much of a purpose. And, and frankly, if you, if you don't have a purpose, if your only purpose is making money, why not rob banks if the risk reward makes sense? If you don't think you're going to get caught, <laughs> uh, and so at the end of the day, that that's the thing I really wish I realized earlier in my career.
2: What about you, I Michael? Spend, yeah, I, you know, I spent especially early on in the finance world. You spend a lot of your time building models, you know, building financial models in Excel. And when you build a financial model in Excel, there's usually some output number that you're trying to maximize. You know, in the financial world, oftentimes that's your rate of return or your risk adjusted rate of return, but the corporate world, that might be profits for your division. And and so you get in this single variable optimization mindset of let me change all these different variables to try and maximize this single number down to the bottom. And the problem with that is I think about how all the time business leaders will say, you know, our employees are our greatest asset. Our employees are our greatest asset. But if you look at the financial statements, Employees aren't on the balance sheet. They're on the income statement as an expense line. You know, quite literally an expense line meant to be minimized in order to maximize profits. And, and here's the problem with that mindset that I don't think I recognized at the time. And I think that this is this is what you know, what Warren's talking about about purpose-driven business, the field of impact investing or social entrepreneurship. I think this is what, what each of those fields really gets right, is this recognition that. That bottom line of the of the spreadsheet, you know, profit or rate of return, that oftentimes that is a goal best achieved by not aiming so directly at it. You know, there's a, a concept from the British economist John Kay that he calls obliquity. You know, that the best way to achieve some things is not by aiming at it, but obliquely to it. Or Warren likes to bring up the example of sailing. When you're sailing, you can't point. Directly at your destination, yeah. you have to tack with the wind back and forth, mm-hmm. and that's the fastest way to get there. And the same thing is true with profit. Where if I look at my generation, you know, people who graduated business school at a similar time, or people graduating from college today, you know, folks Gen Z, uh, a little bit younger, that for them, when they're trying to figure out where they want to go work, they're looking for an organization that has some sort of deeper, deeper purpose. You can see this in the surveys. You know, you ask people what they want out of a career, they say they want meaning, they want significance. In a world where today. You know, half of Americans feel no connection to the, the purpose of their corporation, no connection uh, to any sense of meaning or significance from their work. And if you're a business leader, you're trying to recruit the best talent, you're trying to maintain, retain the best talent, motivate them. The only way you can do that or the best way you can do that is by organizing your organization around a purpose deeper than profit. And so I think this idea that, you know, the best way to maximize profits, the best way to maximize return over the long term is by not focusing so relentlessly, so myopically on it. I think that's, that's a realization that the whole business world is coming to now and one that, that I think it took working and impact investing
1: for me to, to start to, to think through. That's funny. I, the, the legendary uh, football coach, uh, Bill Walsh, uh, wrote a book called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And what he meant by that is, you know, no football team goes out and you no know, good football team goes out and tries to maximize score. What it does is it goes out and tries to figure out how to run the play effectively, which is broken down into who's going to block and who's going to pass and who's going to run. That concept is something that I think uh, is, is critically important.
0: That's actually a really great analogy, actually. It's uh, not focusing on the big number, but actually on how you're going to get there and who you're going to bring along say- for the ride.
2: Yeah, no, and I say in that book, he talks a lot about things like culture, you know, kind of this soft, touchy-feely, feel-good sort of stuff that I think a lot of hard-nosed business people, you know, throw to the side in, in favor of, you know, hard numbers. But if you take care of those things, you know, things like culture, you know, that's where the title of the book comes from. The
0: score takes care of itself. Absolutely. So how did you guys first get involved with conscious capitalism here in Connecticut?
1: What's well, funny, we actually had a, a, a really cool lunch. When we were at uh, being Capital Double Impact where Raj Sisodia came over and, and actually described cap- uh, Conscious Capitalism to us and answered a bunch of questions and it was a really really interesting interaction you know we were aware of John Mackey and, and his books and, and 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 the story of course of, of Whole Foods but, uh, but getting a chance to sit down and actually have a have a discussion with Raj I, I remember a particularly interesting discussion where you know, we asked him how do the rules of conscious capitalism apply to a company like Philip Morris, for example. And his answer had a lot to do with you know, with purpose. Um, it was, you know, what it? Why does that company exist? If it exists to help people to relax, and if it exists to help people have fun, then it should move with the times in pursuit of that ambition, but without, you know, sort of hiding hiding the ball on on things that you know. When we realize that things aren't healthy, you have to change with that information instead of try to hide it. Uh, anyway it was a really a cool discussion and so we've always been interested in, in conscious capitalism when the book came out or what was about to come out uh, Tara Jenkins who who runs the chapter up here in Portland Maine reached out to us and asked if we could uh, have a conversation with the with the local group which was a lot of fun and so that's how we were sort of reintroduced uh, to the group
2: one thing I love about these these conscious capitalism chapters you know I'm, I'm from Connecticut originally so know that part of the country very well and one thing I love about these chapters is that there's Focused in many times, focused on very small businesses, you know, locally owned companies, local business owners who are who are trying to think about better ways to run their companies, who are trying to understand why it is that the way they are running their company intuitively was you know well aligned with the direction that capitalism needs to go. And it's something we write about a bunch in the book because you know I think people go back and they look at Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations in 1776 and the, and and you know, these concepts of the invisible hand. They want to apply them to today, but we we go through this history in one of our chapters. You go back to 1776, and nearly all economic activity that happened worldwide happened in small, locally owned farms and shops, and you know small manufactories with, with you know maybe a small handful of employees or apprentices. And then the few corporations that did exist, like the big trading companies, say, Adam Smith was actually worried we're subverting these ideals of a free market capitalist system. And the the fascinating thing for us then tracing that history from from those sort of locally owned small business beginnings to the global corporate financial capitalism we have today is just seeing how a lot of things that are intuitive if you own a local company. Things like the trade-offs between, you know, I can pollute my environment, but it's my environment that I'm polluting. You know, if if I dump waste into a local river, it's my river. And if I hire or fire employees, it's my neighbor's or my neighbor's kids that i'm hiring or firing and so in that local context you know externalities the way economists talk about them don't really exist in the same way whereas once you get to big global financial corporations then suddenly things like you know the carbon you release into the atmosphere you know what impact does that have on you know, a shareholder of that corporation they don't necessarily think you know they don't make that connection the way small business owners do and so i i love Warren. and i've loved being able to talk with profile for the book and talk with now small business owners, you know, people who work in locally owned stores, because a lot of what we advocate, and I think a lot of the direction that things like the business roundtable statement or the Davos Manifesto on purpose, you know, a lot of these things that are trying to push corporations to be more purpose-oriented, care more about their communities and the environment, in many ways, it's just getting us back to where we were hundreds of years ago when all business was kind of done with more of this local social responsible mindset.
0: Yeah. Actually, that brings me on perfectly to this question is, if a company wanted to make a shift to being more conscious, if you like, what would your advice be?
2: The first thing, the most important thing is purpose. You know, we Warren, Warren trace a little bit of the history, but if you used to have to put purpose into your charter, you're now seeing that movement come back around. And so the French food giant, Danone, for instance, they voted this summer to put uh, a new purpose into their corporate charter that said, Why do we exist? And for them, it was, you know, they're, they're the parent company of, uh, say, like a yogurt brand, Dan, in, in the US. They said, Why do we exist? We exist to bring health through food for as many people as possible. You know, when every corporation has a mission statement. Oftentimes, these kind of bland statements bandied across websites or, or, or corporate retreats. But with Danon did that no other, a few other companies have done is they said, let's put that in our charter. And that's something that the B Corp movement has been leading now for many years is trying to bring purpose closer to the, the core of what a company does. Then once you figure out what that purpose is, once you define that for yourself, then I think that becomes kind of the nuclear core of, of the strategy for your company. So if, if that's the kind of nuclear core, then I, the other direction I would take this, this answer is to say right now, every company in the world big or small spends a lot of time measuring its financial results measuring and reporting on its financial results if you're a big public company you get an auditing firm like ey or PWC to audit them you know everything has to be in line with accounting standards but when it comes to the other impacts a company has there's almost no standardized mandatory audited reporting to speak of so I think the other big thing I would I would do if I was a company is I would think about first, what is the purpose? You know, what deeper social environmental use do we have in the world? And then secondly, how can I think about starting to measure these sorts of things? You know, if I care about my employees, Warren has, has been doing a bunch of work on this recently, but if I care about my employees, how am I gonna measure the impact I have on them? You know, wages are a good place to start, but maybe I should also be asking them, you know, how much, how connected do you feel to the company or Maybe I should start measuring things like the diversity of my workforce. It's amazing how many companies will report on the fact that they have a diversity policy, but not report on what the actual diversity of their workforce is. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that sort of movement towards starting to measure, not just your financial results, but your social environmental results as well. That's going to pull us closer and closer towards this idea of companies that are considering not just their financial bottom line, but their social environmental bottom lines as well. It's triple bottom line idea.
1: Have you got anything to add to that, Warren? If I could boil down everything that I learned at writing this book, I'd say there are two things. The first is purpose, which we've, I think we've covered in some depth, and the second is this notion of measurement that Michael's talking about. It's really interesting. You know, We've been talking to a whole bunch of folks as we've been starting this new, this new business. and One of the things that's become very clear is that you know, no one can even agree on what the, the definition of a good job is. Very few people can agree on how we should be reporting on things like climate change. We all agree on what the big issues are, uh, but we don't have uh, good measures. And until we have good measures, it's gonna be hard to hold you know, companies accountable to improvement. Uh, and so in, in the meantime, what we get is lots and lots of PR. When I see groups like the Business Roundtable, Uh, get up and make statements like they did last summer that you know they they are now focused on stakeholders again a a reversal of a prior statement what my view is okay that's great but if you really believe that why don't you make progress in the area that i think we can all agree would be hugely beneficial which is common simple mandatory esg standards for all public companies Uh, if we could get that done a a lot of good things would change
0: Mm, absolutely So gentlemen, if you hadn't gone into a career of business and finance, what when you're a little boy, what was the dream? What did you want to do if it wasn't what you're doing now?
1: That's a good question. I mean I I grew up in Montreal, so I wanted to be a hockey player. Or you are, you're just
2: just an amateur hockey player.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It was it wasn't gonna be a a great way to make a living for me, unfortunately. What Um, about
0: you, Michael?
2: Uh, I think embarrassingly, I've got all these memories when I was very young. Carrying around my dad's old briefcase so I think for better or for worse I always dreamed of becoming
0: a businessman oh you're a little nerd <laughs> well, you're a little geek I love
2: it <laughs> I can just imagine and I've it. achieved all of my dreams
0: <laughs> <laughs> so when you're not focused on work uh, which obviously isn't much time what do you guys like to do to relax are you into television sports what what do you do to unwind and switch off from a day's work
2: both of us music a little bit. Warren, you play a little bit more than I do. Do you want to plug your, your album?
1: Uh, well, I, uh, my, my little brother and I did create a, create a record a few years back called Dream of the Sun. We had a band called Picnic that used to play down in, in, in New York. And so I do, I do love music. When, when you're playing music, it's impossible to think about spreadsheets, uh, which is one of, the, uh, one of, the, one of its many uh, virtues.
2: <laughs> what about you, Michael? Yeah, I agree. And, and in different times, in different times travel. You know, Warren and I met when we were both working in Hong Kong. I loved that year. Living abroad, love to travel. And, and I think there's probably a lot of people right now, whether it's going to see relatives or going to a new city or going to a new country, I'm ready. I and I think probably six other billion people on this planet are ready for, uh, for COVID to subside so we can get back to to, be able to travel and, and meet new people.
0: Absolutely. It's funny
1: for, you know, for me. I must say, uh, not having to travel has been probably one of the biggest, uh, <laughs> biggest pleasures. It's been sort of a hidden, hidden blessing of COVID. And I, I did a lot of travel. Uh, I've lived in a lot of, a, a lot of different places, and I think it is enormously valuable. It certainly uh, gives you a perspective that not everything that happens, you know, at home needs to happen that way you know not and, and frank, frankly just the way corporations are run in different countries was was eye-opening to me and so you know, it's not like american capitalism is the only way to do capitalism but on the on the travel front it's funny because i keep telling my kids how lucky they are that uh, we all get to stay home as a family and my 16 year old keeps saying to me yeah but you're 47 i need to do a few things before i'm happy sitting around it uh, by the beach in maine so <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, i've got to be honest i think i'm on the side of the of the, the little one Uh, It's not a a vacation unless it involves a passport, I've got very itchy feet at the moment. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Thinking thinking about the countries that you've been blessed enough to visit and to live and work in, have you got a particular favorite and why would that be your favorite?
1: I must say I loved living in Japan and I loved working in Japan. It's a very challenging place, Um, I'd say. It's a place where many things look like home, uh, but once you scratch the surface, uh, m- many of the assumptions underneath are, are, are very different. And that, that plays out a lot in the realm of, of, of business. I think that the Japanese culture uh, takes a, a longer view of many things. And when it thinks about stakeholders, I think it actually does a really nice job of taking a longer view of, of stakeholders from a business context. And I, I was struck by, you know, we, we were involved with a restaurant company uh, over there and looking at the supplier relationships. You know, there were all kinds of things that seemed to an American eye uh, inefficient. Uh, and yet, when you looked at them over the arc of those, those you know decades-long relationships, you saw that uh, there was a culture of sort of, I'll lend you a hand when you're down, you lend me a hand when I'm down, and we'll look at this relationship uh, you know, over decades as opposed to over quarters. I think that that orientation has helped form my view that um, American business is just too short-term focused. And I think, frankly, there are many things in, in American culture that I think you know, could benefit from a little bit of a, a longer timeline uh, consideration.
0: A bit of a Japanese polish. Michael, what about you? Favorite country? <laughs> yeah, I think well, the, the other wonderful thing I'll just
2: echo on Japan is, I think, in many countries in the world, as they get richer, as they get more developed, they also become more westernized in some ways, or, or they sort of feel more familiar to an American traveler uh and the the crazy thing about japan is you know it is as wealthy a country it's developed a country many ways more developed than the us and yet it is so so different you know it's kind of a through the looking glass sort of place in many ways culturally which is just an incredible experience to be able to visit i would say um i love you know travel in, in hong kong you're never more than a short flight away from much of southeast asia so i love to be able to travel and Cambodia, and Thailand, and Myanmar, and, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of places that feel a world away. I think the strangest place for me to travel was Australia because I've never been to somewhere that was farther away that felt more familiar to, you know, I was born in California. It felt more familiar to me than being in, you know, Sydney Whereas I was, I don't know what the time change is, 18 hours, 20 hour time change or something, and yet it felt like I could have been sitting, other than the accents, it felt like I could be sitting back in the, the Pacific Palisades in LA. And
0: just as expensive, I've heard. Uh, (laughs) If you could have dinner with any figure in history, you can have a couple. Who would it be and why? And What questions might you ask your ideal dinner party, dead or alive? I studied philosophy
2: as as an undergrad. So maybe I would put together, assuming the language will prove no barrier. Maybe I put together a, uh, a table of Greek philosophers. You know, it's funny for the book this did not make it into the book this would have been a little bit um, too academic but a lot of this work we were doing around purpose we've talked so much about a lot of it traces its way you know back 3,000 years to Aristotle and and uh, and his philosophy you know what, what he would look for is the teleology the, the purpose of an organism that in trying to figure out ethics he would first decide on you know, what is the purpose of life and then and then derive some ethics from that. And so I don't think we would talk about business, but maybe I would talk with some of the old philosophers.
0: That'd be an interesting one. What about you, Warren? Musicians? Ice hockey players?
1: I mean, it would be, it would be hard to pass up a dinner with Bob Dylan, just because I think it would be incredibly strange and enjoyable. <laughs> um, and I'd like to ask him what some of his songs uh, mean. Another person whose name uh, comes to mind is uh, is President Teddy Roosevelt. And, and partly because Uh, He said one of my favorite things, which is um, one of the greatest gifts that life has to offer. I think he said by far the greatest gift that life has to offer is the chance to work hard at work worth doing, which I think is a really something I repeat to my kids often. I think it's a really important Mm -hmm. uh, notion. It's not something. It's again, it's not something I actually realized at younger, uh, at at an earlier age. Uh, But he's also a person who faced down um, uh, an America corporate America that at the time was, you know, the Gilded Age and had many of the issues that we have today in terms of, of, of concentration of power and I think uh, helped to you know, break up the trust and, and change the trajectory for America. He helped to you know, do things like the, um, you know, the establishment of national parks and, and I think there's just a lot of stuff that happened then that wasn't inevitable but we take for granted today and we're at this new watershed moment here where I think we need, need to channel courage like the, the courage he showed.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, particularly with the national parks. It's an interesting one. What do you think has been your greatest success, both professionally and personally?
1: It's so hard to answer that question because... Everything is still a work in process, Uh, you know. uh, When I think about, I mean, certainly on the personal side, having, you know, uh, being lucky enough to have the family I I have, I don't know if that's a success, but it's certainly an unbelievably uh, fortunate feature of my life, and it's something that doesn't necessarily take a pandemic to realize how lucky you are in those regards, but it certainly underlines it. But on the the professional side, I feel really fortunate uh, to have discovered this sort of second career, you know, in my early 40s, this idea that I could I could go off and, and 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 pursue social impact through through my work and use my skills in this way. And I must say, I'm thrilled to wake up each morning. I'm thrilled to go to work. I'm currently working on building a, a social impact fund focused on workers. And it's just striking how much opportunity there is uh, to to do better by American workers and also to create more valuable companies in that way. And I just feel so blessed uh, to be able to do that each day. I don't know if we'll ever be able to declare a victory on that humongous challenge, uh, but I think that uh, you know every day the little bits of progress feel like well the, those little bits of progress feel like success to me because I get to get wake up the next morning and do it again. So,
2: yeah. What about you, Michael? I don't mean yeah. I don't uh, I don't mean to cast aspersions on Warren Buffett. I know I've already brought him up, though so I think he can probably take it. He's got this book, Tap Dancing to Work. That uh, you know Warren, as you were talking about, uh, you know what you're doing of, which, uh, you know, we write in the book about some of the more unsavory, you know, some of the investments that required shutting down factories and things that he was a part of. I think just opposing those corporate actions with the idea of him tap dancing to work is not quite the, uh, not quite what he was going for. In some ways, it's crazy to me to think about how much, Warren was citing these facts on how much the economy has developed since 1750, how much GDP per capita has grown worldwide. In some ways, it's crazy that we have become so much wealthier as a world as a country as a society um and still if anything are suffering more with finding work that we can be connected to um you know finding organizations that serve a purpose that we feel deeply connected to and 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 therefore you're able to spend the working hours of our lives doing something that is worth doing you know in, in the teddy roosevelt quote and and so i would say you know my burgeoning accomplishment i hope is is being able to s- devote a career to this sort of space and particularly and this is true for both the social impact fund we we're working at previously and what both Warren and i are doing now in trying to build businesses that create that opportunity for others as well uh, and invest in companies that are doing that for others because i think this is a responsibility that anyone who invests capital but really all of us anyone who is you're directing money through what they buy, where they work, how they save and invest, uh, even how they vote. Do we all have this responsibility to help kind of bend capitalism to be more purpose-driven, more responsible, more sustainable? And and so my hope is to be able to devote you know, my career and help others to vote theirs, to finding whatever little ways we can in, in doing that.
1: One thing I just want to say, Claire, as Michael was describing that, it's important, it's really critically important to recognize that not you know, most people don't get to tap dance to work. You know, in fact, 40 million Americans today don't get to go to work at all. And this is a you know, when I think about the social issues, which have become much more in focus in these past in these past months, I really do. First of all, I think it's great that the social issues are more in focus, but I think workforce issues are so central. 50 percent of American workers today describe themselves as disengaged. 13 percent of American workers are so disengaged, so disaffected by. The companies they work for they actively work against the companies that employ them wow. that's one in eight workers and i, and I guarantee you by the way it's, it's higher for private equity owned companies so there's just this huge opportunity to address workforce issues and make and, and frankly i think to improve not just the social things that will that'll result from that but also the you know just the economic things i think the di- disengagement's a half a trillion dollar drag on gdp and so, anyway, this workforce thing. Michael and I are extraordinarily lucky, but we—it's critical that we extend that feeling of purpose and that feeling of of meaning and, and, and having real work to do uh, to uh, to others for the benefit of all. Frankly,
2: mm.
0: what do you think has been your greatest fear that you've ever had to face in your life?
1: I mean, I, you know, listen. There's lots of different kinds of fear, but from a conscious capitalism perspective, frankly, I was terrified going to work at a fund called Double Impact. You know, I was really scared. To me, the idea of in- including social criteria in your work, I mean, that sort of smacked of, you know, socialism or, co- or communism or something, it just sounded so scary. And I did it because I had the courage to do it, uh, to, to leave my old career well, frankly, it had a lot to do with uh, with Governor Patrick. But I remember when I, you know, six months into working at Bain uh, Double Impact, I, I met one of my old colleagues in uh, the lunchroom and they asked me, how's it going at Bain Capital's children's charity? They didn't realize that there could, you know, that we had a business that, you know, tried to <laughs> engage uh, you know, social and commercial things at the same time. So anyway, that was that. that to me, I was so, it was so deeply ingrained in me to think that you had to be giving something up to try to do you know, good things with your skills. And and I do think that that fear exists in many of us. And so I'm not sure if that's my scariest moment, but it certainly was a scary moment that I think speaks to this larger challenge that we have.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of people, you know, around my age who are still just getting into the heart of their careers. And there's this big fear around getting off the treadmill. You know, you've started at an investment bank or a law firm or a a business, and, you know, you're getting into it. and, And, you know, if you ask, I remember when I was at Stanford Business School, I did a poll of my classmates. Um, a little survey monkey poll online asking what ambitions do you have for your career? And almost everyone said, you know, oh, I want to I wanna do well for myself, for my family. And they also said, you know, I want to have some positive mark on the world. And then when I asked, do you feel any tension between those two things? A tension between doing well and doing good. And something like 90% of people said, Yes, I've I've felt that tension and and I think maybe 90% of them said, uh, in my career so far, which for business school students is only you know, a few years, in my career so far, I have often sacrificed, felt like I had to sacrifice doing good for doing well. So I think there's this, this fear that, that, you know, we're operating in a culture and an economy that is built around this ideology of separating out your moral and economic life, you know, to go back to where we had started, and there's this fear that if you try and mix these things, you try and do the double impact or the social impact or the social entrepreneurship sort of work, you try and mix these things, somehow you're gonna get off track. You'll never be able to get back on. That you're you're kind of falling into the organic kombucha, backyard composting, hippies part of the economy, <laughs> and, and you'll never be able to get back into the mainstream. you will on track to become a CEO someday or have a fulfilling career. And I think, you know, we now, having. Done all the research for the book and in building our funds. I've seen all this research that gives us heart that this is the direction that all business is going, that all of the economy is going. And therefore, those people who are leading, you know, companies like John Mackey's Whole Foods or like Patagonia and all these other B Corps or social enterprises or conscious capitalism sorts of companies are, are leading, that those will be the ones that win over the long term. But it's, it's still an article of faith at some point right now and trusting that that that, those sorts of business practices are what's going to be rewarded by employees, by customers over time.
0: Last couple of questions then, gentlemen. Tell me a little bit about your plans, both personally and professionally for, say, the next five years. I won't say 10 because 10 feels a little bit out there at the moment, particularly in our current pandemic situation. But what's your your plans, say, for the next five years? In times of COVID, my plans
2: for the next five days, I feel like, are are difficult (laughs) to say. So the the problem, you know, the problem that Warren and I, one of the problems we identified in the book was impact investing as a scale problem. That we would spend all this time trying to help grow a a healthy food company, say, from a thousand customers to 10,000 customers to a million dollars of revenue. And at the same time, when Taco Bell releases a taco that is wrapped in a Dorito shell, it sells a million tacos in 24 hours, 400 million tacos in a year, and so I, I think we both started focused on this idea that if we really are going to change, if impact investing is going to change capitalism, it has to somehow be the the laboratory that proves out what sorts of methods or business practices can ultimately be adopted by big Fortune 500 companies. And so that's professionally, that's that's the task I'm, I'm trying to work on is bringing some of these lessons of the impact investing world, some of the the lessons from, from Accountable and bring them to the public markets and figuring out how can we create investment funds that actually represent the values and interests of mom and pop investors out there, Mm -hmm. who I should say, you know, we've created this battle as if it is shareholders versus stakeholders, that the problem with capitalism over the last 50 years has been the shareholders have profited while stakeholders like employees or consumers and communities have suffered. But there's 140 million some shareholders in America, you know, people, millions and millions of people just own some shares in their 401k accounts and their retirement accounts through their company pension. And their interests are not served by maximizing profits quarter by quarter. Their interests are served by taking this broader long-term sustainability focused stakeholder focused view of of building corporate value. And so, and so I'm in the early days, you know, the book is still coming out. We're still trying to promote these ideas. But in the early days, I'm trying to turn my attention towards the public markets.
0: It's a noble cause for sure. What about you, Warren? Well, Michael worries about big, uh,
1: big companies, and I think he's right to do that. You know, the Fortune 500, I think, is two thirds of the U.S. GDP, so that's the right place to focus for system change. I'm going to keep plugging away in impact investing, which you know I, we like to call the lab where capitalists work to reform capitalism. Impact investing, as practiced by in our fund, to Sigma Impact we're gonna be buying medium-sized companies. And, and the idea with medium-sized companies is, you know, they're big enough that they matter, that they're kinds of companies where they can actually have an influence and they have enough resources to, to invest in things like what we like to do, um, but they're uh, small enough that you can make change. We always uh, kind of thought of, uh, when we said it's the, you know, Impact Investing is the lab, what we mean is um, we can show, we can do things in microcosm that then Michael can go scale. Our fund has the explicit uh, ambition uh, to foster system change by studying the relationships between the actions we take in our companies you know, th- th- with workers and, 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 and what happens uh, socially and financially to those companies. And I think that if we can make the case that uh, workers have been a blind spot, it should be a place uh, to invest rather than a line item to be reduced. I think that would be a really good thing for the private investment, but also for the broader economy. And so I'll be talking to Michael a lot about these issues as we learn things.
0: Fantastic. Gentlemen, how can people find out more about you, what you're getting up to? How can they uh, get in touch if they wanted to get in touch with you? Self gratuitous plug.
2: Please. And thank you. It's accountablethebook.com. If you want to reach out, our uh, email address is there. Hello at accountablethebook.com. We are excited about these issues, excited to talk to anyone else who's excited about these issues and, and grouping together and coordinating and trying to do something big. So, we're looking forward to connecting with folks and, and continue to help do whatever little part we can in, in growing this movement.
1: Yeah, the whole the whole purpose of, of of spending those three years writing this book was to have conversations like these, Claire. Which, uh, first of all, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And if there are folks out there listening to this uh, who would enjoy furthering it in any form, we'd uh, we'd be delighted to do that. We think these issues are critical, and we enjoy hearing the perspective of others. So.
0: Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism is published by HarperCollins in the US and Penguin in the UK and is available to buy online and at all good book outlets. Gentlemen, it's been a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you, Claire. Thank you you for taking the time to listen to the latest installment of The Curious Capitalist. For more information, you can visit the website connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org.